Can you believe without any drug or any procedure, you created that within yourself with the tools that you're born with. You didn't have to buy them anywhere. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma, where we seek out stories of resilience from individuals and experts in the field. I'm Angela Shen. Today, we're talking to psychiatrist Morali Krishna as he shares his expertise on mindfulness. So thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. You're most welcome. Yeah. Why don't we just start with you giving an overview of your background, um, basically your life, your career story up to this point. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm Dr. R. Morali Krishna. I've been a psychiatrist and mind-body specialist in Oklahoma for several decades. And I come, came to Oklahoma in 1975, and I've been here ever since. My most recent positions have been, I've been the president of Integris Mental Health System for 25 years. I helped start it, and I retired about two and a half, three years ago from that position. I still serve on the State Board of Health. I teach at the OU Health Science Center as a clinical professor, volunteer faculty. And I was past chief of staff at St. Anthony Hospital. When the bombing happened, I was chief of staff and I helped coordinate the relief efforts. Oklahomans have touched my heart with how they have healed our community and ever so grateful to Oklahoma. So we, along with Kelly Fry and Terry White and Reggie Witten, I helped start the Arcadia Trails Addiction Recovery Center. It's a world-class Addiction Recovery Center. The dream was started at my home with those three wonderful individuals, Kelly and Terry and Reggie. And we raised an enormous amount of money and interest and, and built that center. It's operational, it's doing well. And also my passion is uh, mind, body, spirit. How the mind and the brain and the body and the spirit are connected, not only anecdotally, but based on science, what is science telling us? And I've been a practicing psychiatrist until three years ago uh, in Oklahoma City. I treated all mental illnesses uh, from mild to severe. And, and I had a group of about 10 to 11 doctors and therapists and psychologists I work with that we practice together and help this community for a long time. I brought in a lot of younger doctors into practice. I taught medical students and residents. And I've been a very proud part of Oklahoma and Oklahoma's uh, wonderful healing spirit. My background is I was originally born, you know, come from India, born in India into a middle-class family. My father was a government uh, worker. He was an administrator in charge of roads and buildings in a state government. And my mom was minimally educated, fifth grade education, but she was brilliant and loving. And my dad was gone a lot out of home for his work. So my mom kind of kept the family together. She was like the glue for me and my two sisters, so one older, one younger than me. As a young boy, I was very active and playful and continuously uh, wanted uh, to play outdoors. So we played games like soccer and cricket, and uh, cricket is more like baseball. And most of the time we were on the streets, our, our playgrounds, so playing and kidding and joking. So I was good for only two things as, as a young child. One is I was extremely good in mathematics for some reason. The numbers came to me very easily. So the second one was I was the fastest runner in the class. I was the smallest kid in the class. So I guess to get away from the bullies, I learned to become very fast in my running. And nobody could catch me as a child. And so that was my claim to fame. So nothing, nothing, no brilliance anywhere else. Uh, 
except people liked me and I liked people. I liked to be with people most of the time. So the key moment uh, happened. Before that, I used to dream about being an engineer, a space engineer. You know, I used to build small, small automobiles and trucks and cars and cranes and buildings and with mechano sets, erector sets and other metal and plastic parts. And I used to rebuild them over in a very creative, constructive way. I used to want to build spaceships for the future uh, that uh, man could travel to other planets and, and maybe other stars. So I used to dream about, you know, going to the United States, immigrate there and achieve my dreams and perhaps work at the National Aeronautic and Space Administration. I would have accomplished that because I was so good in math. So it came naturally. I didn't even try. Unfortunately, uh, a major catastrophe happened in the form of a strange illness that uh, struck my mother. I was a nine-year-old boy. Uh, one day came back from school around four o'clock and found my mother not waiting in the front door because she used to wait in the front door when we came back from school with a nice, wonderful uh, homemade snack and a wonderful glass of homemade uh, limeade, sweetened limeade. We used to grab it. First, she used to hug us, and we hugged her with love and affection, warmth, and then drank the sweet juice, and then ate the snack, and immediately she made us do our homework in the veranda. And we did that reluctantly, because she wouldn't let us go to play until we finished the homework first. So we did that to satisfy her, and she taught us how to sing, and she taught us almost everything we knew, you know, people skills and she has so much common sense. And more than that, she had abundant love, uh, unlimited love for us. Pretty soon, our neighborhood kids would flock to our house because they realized that if they come back from school directly to our home, they get a nice warm hug from a mother figure and a nice drink and, and a snack. And their parents were excited about it because their homework is done. So we all used to do homework, group homework in our veranda. And it was a happy family for the whole neighborhood. And then we used to go out and play and for until seven o'clock in the evening when it became dark and we came back into the house to have our respective houses to have dinner. So she was kind of like the glue. She was the, our family became the happy family of the family of the neighborhood. So when I was nine, this unfortunate event happened. I came and mother was not there and the rest of the kids came and they couldn't find her. So I went inside and I found her in the bed lying in the bed, uh, staring into space. And I didn't understand what was going on. My sisters couldn't understand because she's normally talkative and happy and warm hug. And she was not talking. She was staring into space. We have never seen her being sick before. I've never seen ha even have a fever or any sickness. So that was kind of strange for me. She was like all the time there for us. So that escalated gradually in the next few weeks, became more severe and more severe and more severe to the point she became dysfunctional. So our dad and we took her to doctors. This was the 1950s. You know, there were not many diagnosed treatments at that time for brain or mind illnesses, mental illnesses. We did not even know it's a mental illness, you know. So the doctors gave some medicines and because at that time there's not too many medicines. If you, if you know the signs of mental illness and the treatments, most of them have come after the 19, late 1950s. You know, the first antidepressants came in the 1950s. For the first antipsychotics came in the late 50s. So this is prior to the development of those. 
So some of the medicines she received, we would classify them as probably poisonous today, or at least dangerous, toxic. But at the time, there's ignorance. You know, most of them are sedative type of medications with no effect on her disease, whatever is going on. And we pretty soon exhausted any little money we had because my father was a middle-class uh, worker. We didn't have any much reserves. So meanwhile, we were devastated with the pain of seeing our mother suffer and not knowing what it is. And she withdrew more and more, practically became totally dysfunctional. And the pain of seeing her suffer was too much for us. And we used to sit in the veranda outside and cry and cry and cry and wonder where God is, because if God is there, why we did not protect our mother, the most loving thing that there is, and she did not anything wrong that we know of, why is she being punished? And our grades have plummeted, and we stopped going out to play. We did not feel like doing that. Also, the neighborhood kids have dropped out. Their, par their parents, some of them thought that my mother was possessed by an evil spirit. So they didn't want them to get the spirit or bring it to the home. And so they stopped coming. So we were practically ostracized from in the school, in the playground, at home, the neighborhood. And that was the least part of the problem for us. The problem was our pain was, my, our mother's pain was our pain, not knowing what's going on. Or is she going to die? So it came to a head when Saturday morning, she woke up, barely the light is coming, dawn time. And I was awake most of the night, worried about her. And I followed her. She went to the front yard. She picked up all the energy she had, went to the front yard. Then she kept on walking to a river about one and a half, two miles from her home. And she went there and I followed her. And then I realized she's going into the river. And then I realized maybe she wants to drown. I was worried about that. And so I started screaming, mom, mom, come back. And she would look back at me, but would proceed. So she went into the river and was gradually going deeper and deeper, going almost to the middle. And a few more steps, she probably would have drowned. I ran as fast as I could and caught on to her as a short boy. I didn't know how to swim. So I hung on to her. I was gasping for breath, barely having enough air. And she realized that I didn't know how to swim. And she realized that I'm going to die before she died. So she withdrew from whatever she was going to do. And holding me tight, brought me to the shore. And I was crying and, and tears were rolling out of her eyes. And we both walked home with heavy hearts uh, with those wet, wet clothes. And that is probably the most painful moment of my life. Seeing your loved one the one that you love most, the one that brought you the earth, coming that close to leaving the world because she felt that she was a burden to us and not knowing what to do and not having any knowledge or any understanding of what's going on. So she made two more serious suicide attempts. Uh, one time she set fire to herself. Luckily, I just came back from school. She was in the backyard. She just set the fire. So I was able to put the fire off, even though a short boy. Another time, she was making an attempt to jump into a well, a deep well. But then she heard my younger sister cry loud. And she felt that the baby needs her. So went back and came back and withdrew the attempt. So that was what changed my life. You know, I start wondering what's wrong with her. 
I knew, knew that's not a spiritual problem. I knew that she cannot be possessed by evil spirit. She was a very, very uh, pious lady, a uh, very spiritual person, believed in God immensely, and taught us the power of God and the power of prayer. And so I, saw, I thought, you know, maybe it's a brain problem or something and that I didn't know. So I kept inquiring and, and I felt that the best way for me to do is to go to medical school. So I studied hard, shifted my attention from the engineering and mathematics to healthcare and medicine and got into medical school at the age of 15 and a half, luckily. And the principal of the medical school took interest in my situation with my mother. And so he started finding out about new medications coming out, started telling me and the family doctor about it. And she got some relief. And then I finished medical school. Then I thought uh, if I go to uh, family practice, uh, I would be able to help people like my mom. I did a wonderful family practice for one year, very satisfying in many respects. And I was very popular, young. I was just young, 20, 21, something like that. Everybody loved me. I delivered babies and, and took care of elderly people and took care of uh, you know minor surgeries and from morning till the evening and sometimes until one o'clock I worked and became immensely successful. But there's something in the back of my mind that's lacking. That's, I said, you know, it's wonderful to do this. I could probably do the rest of my life, but I'm not helping people like my mom that many people. I don't even know where to specialize. So I thought maybe if I would become an internist, I will get the knowledge. So I became, I went into internal medicine. That didn't quite satisfy me. I became very good in knowing about what's going on in the body, you know, and took care of blood pressures and cholesterols and all the wonderful things, but it was not satisfying my deep need to help people like my mom. That's when I realized I need specialized in the mind sciences and brain sciences. And in the part of India I lived, there was no specialty of that kind available. So I immigrated to England along with my wife and one-year-old child back in 1972 or 73, 73, and was there for two years uh, and studied at the University of Birmingham, brain and mind sciences, I became psychiatric resident and was taking diploma in psychological medicine. And then Dr. J. Shirley from Oklahoma contacted me that, you know, Oklahoma needs a psychiatrist. Would you be willing to come here for residency training? And I applied for five residencies and I got all the five accepted around this country. And, and I chose Oklahoma because Dr. Shirley was very interested and Dr. Lopez was interested in us. So we came here in 1975. So that's been, I had the greatest satisfied practice of decades helping people with mental illness, with depression, with anxiety disorders, with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, addiction, a variety of mental disorders. And I taught at the medical school. I was chief resident. I became chief of staff at St. Anthony. And I had a very satisfying career at St. Anthony and then at Integris Health. And I founded the James L. Hall Center for Mind, Body, and Spirit, along with Jim Hall primarily to help people understand the healing power of the mind and the healing power of the mind and brain and spirit connection based on science. And the center is very vibrant. We brought uh, national and international experts to Oklahoma. First guest back in 1996, 97 was Dr. Herbert Benson, professor of uh, psychiatry and cardiology at uh, Harvard, who did pioneering research on the effect of relaxation on the heart and, and, the, and the body back in the 70s. And we had a number of speakers, Rabbi Krishner, 
was here two or three times. Dr. Benson was here several times. Pretty much everybody that did good research and good work in the mind, brain, health, mind, body, spirit work was brought to Oklahoma. We have seminars, we had classes, we had symposia, we had training sessions of the lay public as well as the professional physicians and nurses and therapists and so on and so forth. The center is very thriving. It's uh, reorganizing itself to be more on the cyber online. And Molly Ross is the executive director, and I still serve on the board and, and as, the, as the director, honorary position of director. We have a wonderful board. And that helped Oklahomans to understand better about the healing power that they have within themselves. You know, way back, back in the 1990s, when we started, people didn't understand what's mind, body, spirit all about. And in fact, some of the physician leaders have called me and said, Dr. Krishna, we loved you, respect you, you helped our patients and our families, but are you losing it? And I said, no. Then I said, could you, they said, could you help us understand what is mind, body, spirit all about? So they invited me to a meeting uh, of the medical leadership at 50 Penn Place. And it was a dinner time. And they gave me about 15, 20 minutes to talk. And the dinner was late and they were getting angry about the dinner being so late. So as soon as I took the podium, I asked people, how many of you are frustrated and angry that dinner is not here yet? and you are all hungry. Many of them raised their hands. I said, are you aware that because of your anger for a good cause, justifiable cause, your risk for having a heart attack has gone up by 230% for the next two hours? They said, no. I showed them the study from University of Maryland, Department of Cardiology that shows that even one episode of anger could make the cardiovascular risk go by 230% for the next two hours. The mind is affecting the body all the time. The brain is affecting the body all the time. And the mind and the brain and the spirit are all connected. So your blood pressure, your pulse rate, your heart rate, your breathing, your healing power, your inflammation, your antibody production, all these are constantly influenced by the state of your mind, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, your attitude, your spirituality, how you connect with others or not, whether you're happy or not, whether you're content or not, whether you have any inner peace or not. All these affect every function at the cellular level within you all the time of your moments of waking and sleeping, both when you awake and you sleep. A lot of things happen in your sleep also. So in these trillions of cells in the body, they're connected to each other and they respond to the state of your mind and the state of your spirit and the state of your awareness. And most people don't realize it. And some people don't even realize until late in the life that they have this mechanism, this miraculous mechanisms happening every millisecond of our existence in our body until the moment of death. And that is magical. So in the last three decades, wonderful progress has been made at a scientific level to prove some of these things. Because in the past, it used to be anecdotal or observational. You know, if you're practicing meditation, you have 
much better heart rate and much better blood pressure and you have more inner calmness. But now we have quantified them. What was your blood pressure before? What's your blood pressure now? What is your pulse rate? What's your breathing rate? And how is your inflammation in the body? The inflammatory protein production in the body. So these magical new scientific instruments and scientific ways of peering into the body has helped us consolidate these wonderful miraculous discovery of what the creator has given us to be able to perhaps utilize for our own health and happiness. So that's been my passion for the last several decades. So from treating mental illness, what's wrong with you for decades, I gradually shifted my focus onto how can you discover your inner strengths and healing powers and how can you access them and how can you put them to practice and how can you use them today in your own life, whether you are having illness or not, you can enhance your own inner emotional functioning and mental functioning and physical functioning today. You have that power, except that the creator forgot to put the operator's manual how to get these things to operate. So that's what I talk about a lot in my seminars. And, and I have given a series of seminars called Art of Happy Living for a number of years. I used to do it in Muslim and Baptist hospital or the hospitals or many places in the city. And I wrote a book with uh, Kelly Fry, my dear friend helping me. It's called Vibrant to Heal and Be Whole from India to Oklahoma City that talks about my story of origins, my mother's illness, how it impacted me, and how it has impacted my life and my passion and my career and my accomplishments, if there are any. And treating mental illness and teaching uh, these skills are not a job for me. They've always been a mission for me. You know, the jobs and the titles and the accolades and all those things came along with it you know, unintentionally but it's been my passion, my life. I've had the most fulfilling uh, career in life and I'm 72 years old and I still do some volunteer work. I'm the founding president of the Health Alliance for the Uninsured, which I founded back in 2005 and I was county medical president along with the community leaders and medical leaders. We help about 10,000 uninsured people in about 20 clinics, free clinics and federally funded clinics through the help of 250 volunteer doctors. We give free exams and free medicines and free tests and free treatments and procedures and things like that. One has to go to one of these clinics. It's called Health Alliance for the Uninsured, haunline.org. And you got the numbers to access this help. And that's been very fulfilling for me. And I brought the legislation called Senate Bill 930 that protects all health professionals, not just doctors, nurses, and podiatrists, and psychologists and therapists and everybody in the health professionals and their colleagues and their help from any liability if they're given the work due to the goodness of their heart through one of the free clinics. That's why our volunteer physicians have increased from 35 to 250. It's one of the most beautiful institutions in, in, in the country right here in Oklahoma City. It's called Health Alliance for the Insured. And then I mentioned about Arcadia Trails Addiction Recovery Center. I serve on the board and I give my mind-brain training seminars to the patients there, and they really appreciate that. And I share my own learnings and my own wisdom and help their coping skills to enhance. And then I also teach 
uh, still periodically, not as much as he used to do, and do some public speaking also. So that's been pretty much a, a nutshell of my life story, Adila. Yeah, that you have an amazing life story. So inspiring. Just wow. I mean, I had tears in my eyes when you were talking about your mother. I mean, just wow. And the fact that you've taken that and built this amazing career and helped so many people. That's amazing and so inspiring. Thank you, Angela. I yeah. appreciate that. You yeah. know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the beautiful things I found was that if your intentions are noble and good and it's not for your own selfish interest and your passion is really, really deep to do good for others, the creator will send angels to help you. That's what happened over and over and over in my career. Any of the projects I've done, uh, he has sent unasked people like Kelly Fry with the project we talked about, or Terry, Terry White, or Reggie Whitten, you know, or people like Pam Cross when I started the Health Alliance Uninsured. They come out of the blue into my life and we work together. You know, so the angels come to you without expecting anything in return because somehow their passion and my passion are intertwined. So it becomes our combined passion to make an impact on our fellow Oklahomans in a positive way. So that's a beautiful learning I had. I had every project I had, I can give you example after example, how that has happened. It's kind of spooky, but it's actually real. You know, it's a true story, you know. Yeah, that's something to think about. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What are some tips that just anybody who listens to this can do today to improve their mind, body, spirit? Okay. Several tips. One of the most fundamental tips in life is to first become aware of yourself. Many of us in life are not mindful. You know, we are born mindful. We were mindful inside our mom's womb. And right after birth, we are mindful. And for a while, we are mindful. But somewhere along the childhood, we lose the mindfulness. And we become basically not mindful. So most of the interactions we have, activities we participate in, are things we do. We are not completely focused on that project at the time. We may be partially paying attention, but our complete attention is not there. Because the mind develops a tendency to go into the past or to the future. Am I making any sense? So, so this mind is like a monkey. It goes past or the future, not in the present. Barely, a little bit in the present, but goes on here and there. Jumps, jump, jump. Past, I should have done it. So and so should have done it. You know, I regret this. You know, I wish it was different. I wish he did something different. You know, regrets, remorses, anything from the past. You know, future worry, anxiety, fear, what's going to happen to me, you know, with this virus or my family or my finances or my future or my health or my aging or my parents or my close friends or my career. You know, while doing this, you know, going back and forth between the past and the future, the present gets completely lost. So we carry on the activities without us being fully present in this moment. If you look closely, the only moment we were given by the creator to live is this moment. It's the only one we can live. We cannot live in the past. We can learn from the past, 
we can gain insights and judgments from the past, our opinions, our experience in the past, but we cannot live in the past because the past is not coming back. Present is the only time we have to live. Future is, has not happened yet. As you know, working uh, the TV channels, even the weatherman can't predict 100% accurate all, all the time, in spite of the most, most wonderful technology we have. Because nobody can predict what's going to happen. Nobody predicted inflation from happening, nor predicted the Omicron coming this fast. You know, things happen. We cannot control the future. We may have an idea what we might want to do. We may have some dreams and plans. But so many twists and turns happen. By being preoccupied in the future, we are again ignoring the most valuable, valuable moment we have to live that we were given this moment. So almost like 90, 95% of the time, we're not fully present. So that's an important skill to develop to really fully realize your potential. And that skill is called mindfulness. Mindfulness, I learned about it from my grandfather, a young child. He called it heartfulness. Heartfulness, being fully present with your passion, your heart in what you are today, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're doing, who you're talking with, and, and how you're spending this moment. Fully present, that is heartfulness or mindfulness. Being fully present in the present moment, intentionally, intentionally, without judgment, and being at peace with this moment is mindfulness. Being fully present in this moment, non-judgmentally, and being in harmony, being at peace with this moment is mindfulness. So another level of knowing mindfulness is, mindfulness is nothing but cultivating your own awareness, your own awareness. Your own awareness, conscious awareness, has been there with you from the moment of your birth until today. At the moment of our birth, we were born into this world without a piece of cloth on the body. At the moment of our death, we probably leave that way too. In between, we wear a number of clothes, we change in height and we learn languages, we learn a lot of knowledge and learn skills and techniques and play several roles in our life. But what's constant is your awareness has been there from that moment right now, forever, until we leave our last breath. We don't know what happens after that. There are all kinds of theories about it. So cultivating your awareness, being cognizant of your own awareness is mindfulness. So mindfulness has different dimensions to it, but very simply paying attention to the present moment intentionally, non-judgmentally, and being at peace with this moment. While you're doing this, you cultivate your awareness. Just like you cultivate a plant, you know, you uh, dig the soil and put the right fertilizer, put the right water, the nice sunshine comes in and the plants grow. If you put the seed or saplings or whatever. Similarly, you cultivate your mindfulness. It doesn't happen overnight because the mind is like a monkey, it goes to the past, goes to the future. Okay. 
So when you practice mindfulness, you can practice mindfulness at any time uh, with anything. Every moment of your life can be mindful. Okay. So we'll get into the technique in a minute. Techniques in a minute. There are a number of techniques so anybody can learn. But what is the benefit of learning mindfulness? Number one, you're living your life to the full extent you're capable of living in all its glory, in all its robust color and vivid sounds and taste and smell and, and touch and, 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 and voices and people and spirits. We are connecting with people at the highest possible level. It becomes a union, being one with the object. That's what mindfulness is all about, one with what's in front of you. Not about what happened one day ago, or one week ago, or 10 years ago, or not what might happen tomorrow, or one week from now, or 10 years from now, or 50 years from now. Okay. There are times we think about the future, we, we need to think about future, but not be preoccupied with it. Okay. There are times when we can learn from the past, but never be preoccupied with it constantly. You need to get learn from it and move on. So that is cultivating mindfulness. So what happens? You live your life the fullest extent. You will have wonderful inner peace evolving in you if you're practicing mindfulness. You feel at peace. If you ask me what's the most wonderful thing I would like to have in my life, I would not tell you expensive cars or beautiful homes or lovely trips or whatever you know, or gourmet food every day or whatever. I will say number one thing on my list is being at peace with myself each moment. There's nothing to beat it. No food, no clothes, no diamonds, no trips, no big homes, no nothing equals even a small way having that inner peace within you. That's the ultimate luxury, ultimate comfort ultimate joy one can have in yourself. That peace evolves when you practice mindfulness. You'll be at peace with yourself. Your happiness levels increase. You're more content and your mind clears up. In actuality, your memory improves, your focus improves, your concentration improves, you know, and your performance in whatever activity you're doing, either in your profession or in your hobby or in your relationships will blossom. And every aspect of your life enhances in its quality of what you experience. In addition, a number of things happen in a beneficial way physiologically and physically in the body. Uh, when you practice mindfulness over a period of time, there is activation of the prefrontal area in the brain. That's a very special area of the brain, the forehead, which lights up within six weeks of practicing mindfulness. What does it mean by lighting up? That area's nerves, neurons are becoming more active, more robust in its activity. What do they do? They're the seat of attention, seat of judgment, decision-making, seat of wisdom, seat of inner calmness, seat of emotional control, seat of impulse control, and seat of connecting with others. And in association with other areas of the brain, it helps also the memory. 
becoming stronger, more deep-rooted, and longer-lasting. So the brain shows enormous changes. And then the amygdala, the part of the brain that is a little rascal that creates the stress reaction as when, when it perceives anxiety or threat from the world, when it becomes excessive, like right now due to coronavirus and all the things that are happening, most people are anxious today. Uh, more than 50% of people are very anxious. Never in the history of mankind we've had this much of anxiety. That amygdala is overactive right now. Its size actually enhances hypertrophies because it's active, 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 perceiving all kinds of threats and magnifying them, reacting the body with all kinds of stress hormones, which are not good for our health. You know, stress hormones, basically, they keep us awake at nighttime because they keep the antenna of danger in your brain and eyes. And that is not compatible with good sleep. If, good, if you don't have good sleep, you don't feel rested next day. You don't have peace of mind. And you're more likely to eat uh, no, uh, unhealthy foods because craving for carbohydrates escalates when you didn't have enough sleep. And ill health follows, you know, more prone for weight gain, diabetes, heart disease, inflammation goes up skyrocketing. Pain in the body goes up, disease in the body goes up. And when you when you're stressed out, the blood vessels contract by, by, by about 35%. And the blood inside coagulates, clots faster. The fibrinogen protein inside clots faster and the blood pressure goes higher. All these are perfect combination for a heart attack or a stroke. Stress, excessive stress hormones cause that. Anger causes that, stress causes that, sleeplessness contributes to that, you know, and our eating becomes unhealthy and our judgment and decision-making goes out of the way. So sleep is very vital for you. Sleep well, very important. You get your six or seven or eight hours or nine hours of sleep, whatever you think is needed for you, you need to get sleep. So that amygdala, which is hyperactive, with mindfulness practice, calms down within a few weeks' time and actually right-sizes its response as opposed to being overactive, you know, making you hyper and too reactive makes you more appropriately reactive to the situation. And then your inner healing happens with mindfulness. What does it mean? There is a repair of the tissues going on all the time. During the daytime, especially the nighttime, the deep sleep, the body repairs itself. You know, most of your organs in the body, almost all of them, gets reorganized and healed and reinvented within a matter of weeks to months. And that repair is happening all the time. For example, the muscles tear up in the daytime. Muscle fibers, they repair and become even stronger next day. It all happens within 24 hours in most of us, most of the body. And that repair mechanism, that healing mechanism is enhanced by mindfulness. Then inflammation in the body, the fire in the body calms down with mindfulness. If you look at humanity right now, many, many people suffer from inflammatory disease in the body. You've heard about inflammatory bowel disease. You've heard about inflammation in the heart and the lungs and the intestines and the kidneys and the brain. In fact, inflammation in the brain is one of the causes for mental illness. So that inflammation, fire in the body, calms down with mindfulness. 
there's a protein called C-reactive protein, which is a good marker in the body of level of inflammation that you have. And that protein increases when you have a lot of inflammation, but decreases in the blood when you're practicing mindfulness, when you're at peace. In fact, the heart doctors use the C-reactive protein as a marker for heart disease. And that goes down within a few weeks' time, right in front of your eyes. It's amazing what happens, you know, with mindfulness practice. Your relationships blossom. Your focus blossoms in life. Attention blossoms. Your retention memory blossoms. Your performance ex exceeds in a beautiful way. I've seen people from surgeons performing better to NBA basketball players performing significantly better after practicing mindfulness. And I've seen students, I've seen professors use it from all walks of life. Artists use it. And, and it is one of the important secrets, you know, best known secrets that we have human being, each human being possesses that skill. You don't have to buy it from somebody. Your creator already gave it to you as a great gift for you. Go and grab it and practice it, you know. So incidentally, in the last few years, Mindfulness practice has been found to be very useful in many brain-mind conditions as well as physical conditions. For example, you know, at Arcadia Trails Addiction Center, we use mindfulness extensively and patients find it very useful for them in cutting down their anxiety, stress levels, cutting down their craving, cutting down their impulsivity, and judgment and wisdom and decision-making. And it is a wonderful treatment uh, addition for addiction and for depression and for anxiety. It enhances your emotional health in an enormous way. Students enhance their functioning and their performance and their success enormously with persistent mindfulness practice. And couples, develop even more deeper closeness and deeper understanding and a very special bond with mindfulness practice. So it, it is it's amazing. Food becomes much more special when you eat mindfully. Exercise becomes a joy when you practice with mindfulness. Creativity becomes a beautiful journey, whether you're writing a book or talking or painting, a painting or singing a song it becomes a joy when you're one with it, when you're totally mindful. So what I discovered was that that was how our life was meant to be experienced by us. That's, that is how the creator had planned for us, except you forgot to put the operator's manual. And so we need to learn that and practice that. That's our duty to uncover that. It's like a treasure chest buried in your backyard or somebody has to tell you, you got the treasure chest right there, your grandpa gave it to you, you go and dig it and enjoy it. And that's what I'm doing right now. That you dig it, you find it, and you enjoy it. Does that make any sense, Angela? It's perfect sense. It's relaxing even hearing you talk about it. <laughs> I feel like it's helping me become more mindful right now. <laughs> Thank you. So I'll give you a brief practice. You know, you can start with something very simple. You know, and you have your breath all the time with you. So you can just start practicing mindfulness with your breath. 
breath is there from the moment of your birth until the moment we leave the world. So I want you to focus on your breath, how the air is entering into your nostrils and then touching the mucosa, the nostrils here, and traveling inside the nostril, going inside the pipes here into the lungs. And then how it comes back again through the exhalation, slowly but surely. But while you're doing this, I want you to pay attention to the special qualities of the air you're breathing. And you know, what's the temperature of the air? What's the flow of the air? Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it rapid? What is the rhythm of the air? Breathing in, breathing out. The speed with which it's going, the repetition with which it's going. What's the temperature of the air? Warm, cold, neutral. As you notice, your outbound air, the outbreath air is more warmer because the lungs warm it up. Feel the air as it touches the mucosa inside and see if it's touching and it's vibrating or causing any other sensations within you. So all aspects of the air entering in and out, observe and feel it. No thinking. While you're doing this, your mind gets distracted. You forgot the key in the car or you forgot to do this or you want to do this next or where am I going from here? Whatever thought comes to you, Observe it. Don't get attached to it. Say, I observed you. Goodbye. Come back to the breathing. It'll happen again. Do it again. That's the, how the brain trains itself. Gradually to, to decrease the effect of those distractions and be more mindful and more present. Gradually over a period of time, those distractions go away. Okay. Now you close your eyes right now and practice just for one minute. Observe the breath going in, touching the nostrils, entering into your body. Feel the warmth of the air going in and out. The out air is a little bit more warmer than the in air. And feel the velocity of the air, the speed with which it's going in, touching your mucosa, maybe causing slight gentle vibrations. And feel how it's flowing inside, in and out. It's like a surf on the ocean. You're going in and out, up and down. Breathe at your own pace. You don't have to go faster or slower. Just observe it. Feel it. No thinking. Just observe and feel. Just like you're touching. The air is touching you and flowing inside of you, flowing outside of you. In and out. While you're doing this, distractions will happen. A thought or an itch or a memory or a conversation or what you're going to do next. Just notice it. Don't pay too much attention to it. Come back to the breathing. Your primary focus is the breathing. Feel the breath. Feel the flow. Feel the vibrations. Feel the warmth. Feel the rhythm. In and out.
and slowly open your eyes. That was good. Wonderful feeling, right? Even the light, even the light looks different, right? How was your experience? I feel like I could have, I was like floating on a cloud. Yeah. Almost falling asleep. Can you believe without any drug or any procedure, you created that within yourself with the tools that you're born with? You didn't have to buy them anywhere. It's a marvelous thing for us to discover with so many good things evolve out of it. And I highly recommend people learn mindfulness, practice for a few minutes each day, and expand them gradually. It is uh, really one of the most wonderful gifts you can give yourself for good mental health and also not only mental health, but living life as it should be. That's how he meant it to be. You know. So I would like you to practice this and we'll talk some other things in the future. And it's been a pleasure talking to you, Angela. And I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the good work you're doing there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mental Health Download. I'm Angela Shen with Mental Health Association, Oklahoma.